Acts 9, 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was, dis- there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief police to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let me also congratulate you on arriving at church this morning. Well done. I I wish we had um, some like cameras in some of our cars, like the 10 minutes before we got to church, you know, and then could see us like shoot from your conversation in the car to your conversation here in the seats and then your conversation. I'm sure there's some good moments like, you know, trying to figure yourselves out and some of the things that may have been said. Some of the words Bud used to say, you know, may have come out (laughs) as you're on your way here. um, But you made it. And uh, let me say congratulations. Um, As Lisa's husband said, there are extra jewels in your crowns for getting here on this particular Sunday. So... um, As you know, we're continuing our series on encounters with Jesus. We're almost done. This is our last month in this series, and we're looking at these one-on-one encounters that Jesus had with people, and really the goal is to, uh, to, to see Jesus through this, to ask, what do we learn about Jesus from each of these encounters? I think each person, each man and woman who encountered him would have their own unique story and angle on Jesus. And so today we look at Saul of Tarsus. And I want to ask that question, what would, what would Saul's testi- testimony be to us about who Jesus is based on this particular encounter? 
And there's uh, just two things I want to say today. That was four. I should just do one hand. Two things. I'm doing my Nixon up here. Um, two things I think that, that Saul would clearly testify to. We know him now as the Apostle Paul, but back then he was Saul. And so I want to talk about those uh, today. A um, little background, if, you don't, if you're not too familiar with, with Saul, uh, we learn in verse 11, he was from Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey, south-central Turkey. Uh, he was a Pharisee and most likely a, uh, one of the, a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling group of religious leaders. We think that's most likely true. Uh, he had religious credentials that were unparalleled in his day. Let me uh, give you his own testimony of his credentials in Philippians 3. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So a perfect pedigree, uh, um, just a a perfect background in in religious observance. And... um, he was passionately committed, as, as you hear, to stomping out this new sect of Judaism that had kind of just cropped up in the last couple of years. We'd been following this Nazarene uh, Jesus, the carpenter turned rabbi. Uh, he's introduced to us in uh, Acts 7 and 8 at the stoning of Stephen. So Stephen was this great uh, follower of Jesus, and he's the first Christian martyr, and he was stoned for his faith in Jesus, and there's this ominous phrase at the end of that, that, that statement where it says, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, and Saul approved of their killing uh, Stephen. So that's how he's introduced in the book of Acts. Uh, his name is Saul, so he's named after Israel's first king, Saul, who literally stood head and shoulders above every other man, is how Saul the king is described. A big man. And I don't know if this Saul was big, but he had a very big personality, clearly. Uh, He's passionate. Uh, He was self-righteous. He was prideful. He was very sure of himself. And uh, this scene begins, this moment begins, where he has all the power and authority that at least he thinks he has all the power and authority. Uh, verse one, look at verse one. He's breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That is quite a phrase, breathing out murderous threats. He's rounding people up, putting them in prison. In verse two, it tells us that he carries with him authoritative documents from the religious leaders that enable him to gather people up from all over the empire and imprison them for their faith in Jesus. So. This scene start, he ha, starts, he has the upper hand in every way. Uh, and then he encounters Jesus. <laughs> and so I want to ask today, what, what would he testify about who Jesus is based on this encounter? And here's the first thing I think he would testify to. It would be this. He would say, this Jesus who was crucified is actually the Lord and master of the universe. And he can become your Lord and master anytime in any way he wants. Okay, that's I think the first thing that Paul would say to us today. And I just want, I just want to, I mean, it's such a familiar passage, but I just want to walk through this. I want you to imagine being Saul. He's on his way to Damascus, right? And he's going to round up Christians um, and throw them in prison. He's got a couple, couple guys with him, some soldiers or some, some you know, Tough dudes with him, I think. And then in verse 3, he's nearly to, to Damascus, and then a light 
from heaven flashes around him. Okay, try to imagine this scene. It's, it's so bright that he has, to, he has to close his eyes, he just to shield his eyes. Uh, verse four, he literally falls to the ground. So the big Saul is literally brought low by Jesus of Nazareth. He, verse five, he cries out, who are you, Lord? Who, who is this person talking to me? And the voice responds, I am Jesus. And all of a sudden, Saul realizes this Jesus, who I thought was crucified and dead, is alive in a bad way, <laughs> in a big bad way. And oh my gosh, this guy that I thought was dead, that I've been persecuting his followers, he's alive and he's, he's speaking to me from a bright light that flashes from heaven. Uh, and then Jesus tells him um, what to do, right? Um, verse six, look at verse six. Uh, get up, <laughs> get up. Go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Okay, not much of a discussion with this Jesus, right? He's all command. Saul, get up, go, and I, you'll find out in a bit what you must do for me. So uh, the men traveling, verse 7, they're like, what is going on? Verse 8, imagine this. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So imagine you're walking, you're going to Damascus, this bright light, you know, flashes, it's so bright that you have to close your eyes. Finally, the light goes away, and when you open your eyes, it's still dark, okay? And it tells us that he was blind for three days. And you read a story, you hear that someone's blind for three days, that you just pass right over that line. But I promise you, three days is long enough to, to contemplate the rest of your life, right? I mean, if you, if you, go, you go blind, you can't see, and you're in utter darkness for three days, you have plenty of time to wonder, is, like, is this my new reality? Is this, is this the rest of my life? And, and I think Jesus was very intentional with that blindness of Saul. Um, it's a miracle, right? He struck him blind. It's actually like, I'd call it a reverse miracle. Jesus usually takes blind people and gives them sight. Here he's taking a guy who has perfect sight and makes him blind. It's a miracle to demonstrate Jesus' power uh, in the world, his power over Saul. But it's not just a miracle, it's a metaphor for Saul, as so many of Jesus' miracles were, right? It's a miracle that says, Saul, this is your condition. You think you are seeing clearly, but you are not. You are so blind. You have been so ignorant of the truth. And all your education, all your spiritual pedigree, uh, all your, your ambitions have taken you 180 degrees in the wrong direction. You are so blind, and you are not going to see unless I choose to allow you to see, unless I give you back your sight. And so I want you to just picture those three days of Saul. In, he's sitting in a home, blind, for three days, um, the passage tells us he did two things in those three days. Uh, one, he fasted. Verse 9, it says, For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And the other thing he did for the three days was pray. Ananias is told, you're going to go to a guy on Straight Street, which isn't Straight Street a tough, that's a, that's a tongue twister, Straight Street. I tried that three times. But you're going to go to Straight Street, and there's a man there, uh, and he's praying. So Paul is fasting, and he is praying in darkness. And I imagine his prayers begin with something like, oh my God, oh God, what 
what on earth? What is happening? What, what has happened to my life? What am I supposed to, how do I make sense of this? And um, we, we are, uh, the, the Pascals are here. I'm in, we're in a couple's group of the Pascals. Just this week in our home group, we were, Danny was asking the question, when was the last time um, you really had to like make us, like rethink something deeply in your life? And, and I was thinking for, for Saul, like, it's not every day <laughs> that you realize you've been really, really wrong in a really, really fundamental way. And so I encourage you, like, even now, like, can you remember the last time in your life where there was a, a pretty significant paradigm shift in how you thought about the world? Or, or about your life? Can you even remember the last time you had a pretty fundamental shift in your thinking about the world? Okay, those, those maybe come once a decade for many of us, maybe once a lifetime. Some people never, ever have a change. That's probably a problem, right? <laughs> but talk about Paul here, Saul, an utter radical reorientation in his understanding of his, his life, of the world, right? In, in Galatians, Paul tells us after this event, he said, after that, I went into Arabia for a while. And if you're wondering what's in Arabia, the answer is nothing. There's nothing in Arabia but desert. And we don't know how long Paul was there, but he just, he had to get away probably for a couple months and he had to rethink everything. He had to go back to the Hebrew scriptures. Try to, how do I understand this story now with Jesus as the solution to this story? Um, I remember I had a professor in, in seminary that said, um, we're always one experience away from changing our theology. <laughs> Every human's always, we're always just one experience away from changing our, our theology. Paul was one experience away from having to rethink everything. And so he's, he's sitting there blind, having to rethink his entire life. Uh, and then you've got Ananias. And as I was studying this this week, I realized my, my imagination for the story kind of stops at like verse nine. And I forget the rest of the story about Ananias. There's a whole other person who gets a vision from the Lord too. And so you've got this, this man, Ananias, who's in Damascus, a faithful follower of Jesus. And, uh, and he has a vision from the Lord who says, I'm, I want you to go uh, to Straight Street. Saul of Tar Tarsus is there. And I want you to lay your hands on him <laughs> and restore him to sight. I love Ananias' response in verse 13. Did you guys pick up on that? He's like, um, yeah, geez, uh, no, I don't think that's such a good idea, right? This guy kind of kills people like me and um, arrests people like me. I don't think that's a great idea. And, uh, and really, just as with Saul, Jesus, look at verse 15. His response to Ananias, go. Um, not really a discussion, Ananias. Um, you're going to do this. I'm going to have you go. This man, Saul, he's my chosen instrument to do something amazing in the world. He's, he's my instrument, okay? I'm gonna use him for my purposes. I'm in charge of his life, and he's gonna be my instrument for some really good things, and he's gonna do some great things. Then I, I thought verse 16 was really interesting. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, and I wonder if Ananias really liked hearing that, that <laughs> statement. You know, okay, okay, you got me, Lord, I can, I can do this. And so Ananias goes to this home, and I was just imagining this week What's that like for Ananias to walk, to go on the road, to walk to this home? He's had this vision, Jesus has assured me, but this is Saul. And like, I can imagine getting like, was that, 
real? Was that a real vision? Was that just the chocolate I had the night before? Like, is this, right? Like, is this, and I mean, I can imagine the weighty anxiety that would have been heavy on his heart. But he faithfully goes, right? Um, verse 17, he enters the house. He puts his hands on this man, this persecutor of the church. Brother, <laughs> brother Saul, grace. Um, the Lord who appeared to you has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with this Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales from Saul's eyes, he could see, and he could see in more ways than one, right? His physical sight returned, but his spiritual sight. You know, the veil was removed from Saul, and he came to understand who Jesus was. And it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I, I would love to know what that experience was like for Saul. Having hated Jesus and Jesus' followers, and then encountered this powerful light being from heaven, and then to have the spirit of that powerful voice from heaven actually come into his life in that home and fill him for the rest of his life. I don't know if, that, if there was a powerful experience of that. I, I don't know, but I'd love to know what that was like. Scales removed from his eyes, the spirit making his home in his heart. And then it says... Um, and he was baptized, got up, and he's baptized, right? By Ananias, I assume. Saul, you're washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. You've died to your old life. You're raised to a new life with Jesus as your Lord. You are now his instrument, washed clean by his blood, right? Your life is not your own. <laughs> These are all Paul's words. You've been purchased with a price, and now your life belongs to Jesus. That's Saul's encounter. And I think if he could speak to us today, as I've been saying, the first thing he would say is this, I can testify that Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified is the risen Lord of the universe and he can become your Lord any time he wants. Uh, and when he does, you will realize that your life is not your own, that you lived with an illusion of self-sufficiency and autonomy and being able to do whatever you wanted with your own life and this world being about your story, that illusion will come crashing down, the scales will fall from your eyes and you will realize that Jesus is sovereign over your life and that you can become his instrument and that this is his story that you are a part of and you get to play your part in his story. And Saul came to realize that in a profound and beautiful and very um, dramatic way. And it's interesting, um, you know, after this time, for the rest of scripture, he's almost always referred to not as Saul, but as Paul. We don't actually hear about when that name changed or if we went by both names as a kid or what, but it's so interesting that he clearly goes from being referred to as Saul and his then referred to as Paul. Saul, right? Named after the, the biggest king of Israel, the first and tallest king of Israel. Do you know what Paul means in Greek? Small. <laughs> little. Paulos is the Greek word. It means little. And this, I assume this was Paul's own self-identification after his encounter with the sovereign Lord. This Saul had been knocked down by the risen Jesus and he became little Paul. His favorite 
uh, description of himself as he begins his letters is Paul, a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. And in his letters, his invitation to us is always embrace the sovereignty of Jesus Christ in your life and live with the humility that comes from that. It's interesting. His great treatise is the book of Romans. And after 11 chapters of describing who God is and what he's done, he says, in view of all of that, I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to change the way you think. You know the very next verse he says about how you change the way you think? He says, here's how you start that. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but think of yourselves with sober judgment. He says, in light of all of this, this is Jesus' story and we get to be a part of his story. It's not our story, we're his instruments. Um, we all play our small roles. And so that's what I wanna say, and I have one other thing I wanna say, but that's the big thing that Paul's testimony reminds us in dramatic fashion. We are not living in our stories, we're living in God's story. And we all have this small or large part to play. And what's interesting about Paul is he actually had a massive <laughs> part to play in the story of Jesus is right there. He was one of the most important figures in salvation history. There's, Paul's only come around like once a, a millennium, okay? Paul, big story. Most of us don't have a big story to play. Most of us are a lot more like Ananias. And I love the pairing of Paul with Ananias in this story. He's a person who, this is the only time we hear about this man, Ananias, faithfully living his life. And Jesus had this role for him in this particular moment, and he beautifully and faithfully plays that role. And then he just recedes to the background of the story. We don't hear about him again. And um, I'm struck by my, my, my constant um, desire to put myself in the main character in these stories. Like, I'm always David who's killing Goliath. You know, I'm always like Saul. And it's like, no, you're probably actually, you're just maybe Ananias at best, you know. Um, but here we are just faithfully walking through our lives. Uh, Jesus doing his thing, and we are invited into his story. Little people in this big story that Jesus is, is uh, servants, instruments in the hands of Jesus. That would be Paul's testimony. And then one other thing I would say, and I want to, um, there's some really practical implications for this. The other thing that Paul would testify to, are you still with me? Am I good? Okay. This is called a transition, so I'm just making sure I hit that right. Um, is this, I think Paul would say, this Jesus who is, this is the thing that, that Joel said at the beginning, this Jesus who is indeed the sovereign Lord of the universe is also one who identifies deeply with his suffering people. Okay, and that comes right out of this encounter, right? I'm so struck this week. This is what really hit me most. In verse four, the first words that Jesus of Nazareth ever says to Saul of Tarsus, verse four, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Right? Who are you? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I was really struck by the first thing Jesus wanted to lay on Saul's heart. He doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Stop doing that, right? Or Saul, why, even, why are you persecuting people I really care about and I really love? He doesn't say that. He says, why are you persecuting me? Meaning, when you persecute my people, you persecute me because I so identify with my people that when you hurt them, you hurt me. When you, when you persecute them, you persecute me. And Saul, you don't want to hurt me, right? That's, that's a bad idea, Saul, right? 
And so what, what a weird um, moment, a juxtaposition that must have been for Saul to encounter this voice that was so powerful and authoritative, right? Clearly in charge of everything. And yet to pair that with these people who Saul had come to know as suffering and vulnerable, people he had complete, he, could, he was in charge of. He could just lock them up if he wanted to. And to, to have this pairing of authority with these vulnerable people and this authoritative voice say, that's me. <laughs> that is me, Saul. And I think that's the first thing the Apostle Paul ever heard from Jesus are those words. And clearly it forever shaped his understanding of the church, of Jesus' followers. That the risen Jesus is present in his people. And so you think of Paul's theology, like what Paul's favorite description of the church, I would say his favorite metaphor for the church is we are the body, right? We are the body of Christ. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. That comes right from here. Jesus told him that. I love this one even more in Ephesians 5. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. When Jesus cares for us, when he feeds us, when he encourages us, he's just caring for himself. <laughs> he sees us as, as part of his body. I was thinking this week, I, it's, I don't know if this is silly or not, but I was thinking the question, where's Jesus' body today? And it's actually an interesting philosophical question, right? Jesus rose bodily from the tomb. He was around for 40 days, and the disciples watched his body go into the clouds. Interesting conversation. Where is that body today? <laughs> Jesus is still an embodied human being. Where is it? is it? I don't know the answer. I have no idea what the philosophical answer to that is. But Paul's answer to that is, this is his body today. This is where it is. This is the only physical embodiment of Jesus is his people today as he moves in them through his spirit. His spirit is present, but the only embodiment of Jesus on earth today is through his people. Uh, Teresa of Avila, 16th century uh, follower of Jesus, put it this way, famously, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. There is no embodiment of Jesus on earth today. His spirit is alive and present. We his people are the only physical embodiment of Jesus. And I want to say uh, one other thing. It's for what seems, Jesus seems to be saying in the Gospels and here, it's not just his people in general who he says they are me, but it's especially his suffering people, his people who are faithfully walking with him and suffering as well. That's especially those are the people who Jesus in, in clear moments identifies with. And this is the passage that Joel read. Let me, or mentioned, let me read it to you. Um, this is the last parable in, in, that Jesus gives in Matthew's gospel. And you, many of you know it well. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's himself, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Then he, the king, will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, right? For I was hungry, 
Okay, look, look at these are suffering states. These are vulnerable states. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison, all very vulnerable states. The righteous will answer, when do we do this? When do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink, right? When do we do all these things? And the reply is, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. He's referring to brothers and sisters. That is faith language. He's referring to followers of him who are following him and their faithfulness has led them into these challenging states. And so Jesus is saying, especially when my followers find themselves in those places, I so identify with them. I am so close to them that to love them is to love me. So I, I think that's important. He's not, just, he's not talking about people who would just check Christian on a national survey, a national religious survey, okay? That's not the people he's identifying with. He's identifying with people who have passionately and faithfully committed themselves to him. I want you to look at verse um, two. There's a little phrase in verse two that I absolutely love. Um, Paul asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone there, here's the phrase, who belonged to the, what's it say? The way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners. So um, before anyone was known as a Christian, the earliest followers of Jesus were known as people of the way. And I love that description of, of Christians. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just a, um, a religious practice or a, a set of beliefs, but there is a way of life that these men and women had committed themselves. It was the Jesus way. They'd come to know a person and seen the way he lived and they were beginning to walk in his way of life. And because of that, that was costing them something. And so I think that we, we wanna keep that in mind as we think of those are the kind of people that Jesus identifies with, people who are actively following in the way, committed to his person and ways. And then sometimes suffering happens as a result of that. And what I love, and I'll, I'll finish this off here, is Paul, this is the first thing Paul ever heard from Jesus, right? That, that Jesus identifies with his suffering people. And what I love about Paul's story is eventually Paul himself became one of those suffering people for Jesus. The persecutor became persecuted because he faithfully walked in the way of Jesus. Let me give you one more verse. This is a description years later that Paul gives of himself and his coworkers as they follow in the ways of Jesus and the suffering that came from that. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard pressed, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And then look at the Jesus language that shows up here. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so his life might also be revealed in our mortal body. This Paul followed Jesus, it cost him, and he became a beautiful embodiment of Jesus to others. And Jesus would so deeply identify with Paul. I mean, Paul literally had the marks of Jesus on his back. And so what I love is this is the very first thing he ever heard 
from Jesus. And he came to really internalize that and to faithfully walk with Jesus so that as others saw him, he became this beautiful embodiment of Jesus to others. So I want to leave you um, with that thought. And um, there's some really profound implications of that thought, aren't there? That, that, that Jesus so deeply identifies, um, especially with his suffering people. Um, there's, per, there's really profound implications for those of us in this room who are going through suffering right now. And many of you are walking through very hard times. Maybe it's not persecution. Maybe you're not being persecuted for your faith. But you are trying to walk faithfully through life. And your life has suffering right now. You might be trying to care uh, for a family member. And that's been really hard. You might be uh, trying to be, um, not retaliate in some circumstance and following the ways of Jesus, and that's been hard. You might be trying to use your money in a way that is in, in, the, in the way of Jesus, and that's putting you at odds with um, other friends and, and not allowing you to do certain things that they're allowed to do. All, all, all these, these simple ways that following Jesus can come with suffering. And um, I hope that this morning, as you, as you look at verse 3, um, or verse 4, um, that you hear Jesus saying to you today, um, I am so with you in your suffering. Um, I identify with you. I have deep compassion on you. Um, I see you as an extension of me. And so you're not alone. Um, I'm deeply, deeply with you in what you're doing. And I know that's, uh, that doesn't always mean we feel that in some, you know, nice way. It doesn't mean that circumstances flip and are, and are easier. It can still be a long, painful, slow grind uh, through hard times in life. But this is the true reality, that as we try to follow him and we encounter suffering, he's like, it's not just that I see you. <laughs> I am you. I see myself as being one with you in your suffering. And so that's a beautiful truth to hold on to. And then, of course, and I'll end with this, it's also um, a really important truth to hold on to as we see other Christ followers in our lives who are suffering, who are just walking through life faithfully and for whatever reason are going through a really heavy and hard time. And what I want you to do as, as we close, I want you actually, I want you to identify someone in your life right now who is walking through a very heavy, hard time. Okay, they may have lost somebody, um, they may have some just tough responsibilities on their shoulders. Uh, they might be going through their own emotional or health crisis. Okay, you, you, you know these people. And I want you to just hold them, hold him or her in your mind. And I want to have you consider what would it look like if we, if we fully embraced what Jesus is saying, if we really heard Jesus saying to us, hey, when you love that person, you are loving me. To love that person is to love me. And what would it do to the dynamic of that caring? You think about, I was thinking this way, like Jesus is the Lord of the universe. I can't possibly care for Jesus. There's, there's nothing I can, I can't take care of Jesus in any way. There's absolutely nothing I have to offer the sovereign Lord of the universe. And yet he's saying, yes, there is. When you care for my people who are suffering, that is a way to care for me. That is, the, that is the only way that you can offer me something that I don't have. You can genuinely encourage me, support me, listen to me, right? Care for me. And think about that. Like if we were to 
actually hold that idea in our minds, how different, like, caring for people would no longer be a duty or an obligation. Like, what an honor. What a privilege. Are you kidding me? I, I can, in some way, bless my Lord. Um, that is not a duty. Wow. You put, I want to, that's, that is an honor. And it totally changes um, the dynamic of care, especially when there are people we don't know. Well, sometimes, like, we try to, as Christians, step in and, and care for, like, hurting people or poor people or, and there can be a really not great power dynamic that can be going on there. Like, here we come, we're going to come and be the hope and we're going to help fix your life and do the thing, right? We're, we're the ones who have stuff and you're the ones in need and so we're going to come and bless you and then go on our way, right? But imagine if you thought, no, no, that person is Jesus, okay? That, that, that totally changes the dynamic. There's no power. To, I am, what an honor for me to step in and, and observe the body of Jesus here Suffering and be able to come alongside that and try to encourage in some way, that, there's no power dynamic there. That is a privilege for me to do that. This is Mother Teresa. I've given you two Teresas today, St. Teresa and Mother Teresa. This was Mother, the brilliance of Mother Teresa, right? She, she said, the poor are um, Jesus in a distressing disguise, was her phrase. In a distressing disguise. She said, in, and she would say, um, I say to myself, this is hungry Jesus. I must feed him. This is sick Jesus. Uh, this one has leprosy or gangrene. I must wash him and tend to him. And of course, she served, but she dignified people because she saw dignity in them. And so what, what a beautiful thing as the body of Christ loves um, and, and builds one another up to be able to say, there's no weird dynamic here. This is an honor and privilege um, because Jesus is present in these moments. And I don't want to romanticize this. It's not like people who are suffering have this Jesus glow about them, right? There's no halo over their heads, right? Oftentimes these are messy, um, not fun, just a grind, right? It's, it's not, it's, it's the slow, it's the long obedience in the same direction. Um, but what would it look like um, to step into, into those places um, looking for Jesus in one another? And honoring that in one another. Let me pray for us. Well, Lord Jesus, we honor you today as the sovereign Lord and King of the universe. And it's a good day to remind ourselves we are living in your story, not vice versa. Um, our roles are small and they pass quickly. Your kingdom goes on forever. And so we want to just offer ourselves, offer our lives, and say, Lord, we want to be used. Open our eyes to the opportunities, big and small around us, to just be part of this story. Help us to get out of the center of our own universes. Help us to, to revolve again around you as the center and to play our small but significant and meaningful part in your story. Lord, especially help us. Give us a compassion uh, for those followers of yours that are around us that are suffering right now. Um, move our hands, move our feet to move towards them. Open our mouths, open our ears, open our eyes to see. Uh, give us courage and grace and love and uh, humility to care for one another well and to care for those around us well. For your kingdom's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.